What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Our coverage now continues with the magnificent Laura Coates and the splendid, splendid Allison Camerata. Hey, Laura. Hey, Allison. How are you guys Hello. doing? Hey, Jake. You got two splendids. I'm yeah. not take it personally. I did. That was splendid squared. Um, Jake, fascinating <laughs> conversation with Bob Woodward. Isn't it fascinating how Donald Trump keeps agreeing to be interviewed by Bob Woodward, but then is often annoyed at having been interviewed by Bob Woodward? Well, he did interviews with Maggie Haberman, too, for her book, and then goes on Twitter or whatever. It's like Truth Social, sorry, and, uh, and, and badmouths her. I, I mean, I think he, the truth of the matter is he can't quit us. He just can't. He can't quit us, journalists. He just he, he as much as he wants to uh, own, like uh, as much as, as much as he wants to stay in his comfort zone, and only talk to people in the other channel uh, who don't really challenge him all that much. He really wants to be accepted by people at the New York Times and elsewhere. And CNN. Yeah. Well, I mean, I found it interesting, though, when you thought about it. I mean, the idea of him releasing all these tapes and the motivation that he spoke to you about for the reasons why doing so. In a way, I wonder if he will be questioned in terms of trying to put the thumb on the scale for whatever reason. I mean, there's often the criticism towards journalists that suggests that, you know, the types of stories you publish or the ones you want to put forth somehow lead people to question what your role is or why you're trying to make it known. I think it was perfectly wonderful that he was able to express a lot of the things and put the tapes out there. But I do wonder what the backlash will be, given the motivation he spoke about. Well, I mean, he, he just said that he was listening to these tapes. It's not really even about January 6th. Most of our conversation this evening, as you know, was about foreign policy uh, and about uh, how Trump uh, dealt with COVID or, or didn't deal with COVID. And he just said he was just listening to the tapes with his assistant and with his wife, Elsa, and and he just was stunned that it, it just, it's different than just reading it on the page. When, you, when he says, is this the national security challenge uh, of, of your lifetime? Is this the leadership challenge of your life? And if you, on the page, it just says, Trump says no. Mm. But when you hear the tape and he's like, no. And it's just like, <laughs> it's just, it's different. And, I, and so that's why he's taking this extraordinary step. Also, because he obviously thinks Donald Trump is a, is a threat to democracy and security, national security. Hey, listen, I know as a prosecutor, you want things to leap off the page and have that transcript come to life, but it's not without sometimes consequence of how people question what you do. So it's fascinating. All right, no. Jake Tapper. No. <laughs> you can say no, Jake, but we can't quit you either. No. Thank you. Yes. All right, guys. Have a great okay. show. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. And I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And we've got new sound from the big governor's debate happening right now tonight in Florida between Ron DeSantis and Charlie Crist. And by the way, tomorrow it's going to be John Fetterman up against Dr. Mehmet Oz and Pennsylvania Senate debate. But the question we really are wondering is to what extent these debates really are persuading people? Do they still matter to you out there? Or are they somehow a victim of our already polarized politics? Right. Or are they just political theater? Right. Is that what they're good for? Self-fulfilling prophecy. Who knows? We'll ask. All right. Meanwhile, what are armed men in tactical gear doing at ballot drop boxes in Arizona? Mm. Take a look at this. Would this intimidate you as you drove up to drop off your ballot if you saw guys dressed in masks and tactical gear? Is this even legal? Tonight, we're going to talk to a lawyer who just filed a suit to Mm. stop this. And you know what they say, the truth 
is out there somewhere, not in politics maybe, but we'll get there a little bit closer to the about, about UFOs, everyone. And of course, I know you and I talked about this. You are very interested in this. I feel like you maybe think a whole area, with 57, 51, what's it called again? I don't know, but I believe it. She I know that it. much. Because what there. is that right there? Mm. What is that, okay? And Navy pilots and all sorts of pilots have seen this. Credible people, there's no explanation. And now, today, NASA is doing something about it. We'll tell you who they're putting together, their best minds to actually get to the bottom of what those things are. This was our whole day today already, actually. Me and Allison going back and forth about what is it? What is that right there? And I'm like, I don't know. But anyway, let's go, go and talk we'll about find it tonight. Out tonight. We're going to find out. We're going to find out the truth tonight. Mm-hmm. Oh, Stay yeah. tuned. Kick it off with some looming de- midterms ahead of us and here with us tonight to talk about this and probably a little bit of UFOs if he's into it. See you oh, there, John Berman. <laughs> I drove to Roswell after I graduated college. My, my, my trip post-college with one of my roommates was to drive to Roswell, wow. New Mexico, wow. to find out the truth. We've got a whole panel tonight. Wow. I'm going to talk more about that. Also, we've got Congressman Charlie Dent. Did you also drive to Roswell with your college friends? Uh, no, but I've been to Area 51 in Nevada. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. We have questions. <laughs> a lot of pressure now on Democrat strategist Maria Cardona. Do you have a connection somehow? Did you watch The Martian? What, what's happening? I would love to go to both Roswell and Area 51. <laughs> and I love anything having to do with UFOs. So, yes, I'm awesome. into it. We have a lot well, to talk about. The whole show just changed. There you sudden, go. Didn't Allison? <laughs> yes, it sure did. Um, okay, so John, yes. um, are debates still relevant in helping voters choose candidates, or are they just political theater at this point? You know how much I love theater. Um, I think the answer is yes to everything. I think they are political theater, but I think it's political theater that matters some. I mean, I think the new. I'm going to be highly nuanced tonight on everything mm. from extraterrestrials to, to, to debates. Look, I think we are also polarized now that there are times when people go in to watch a debate when they're more set than they might have been in the past. There aren't as many persuadable voters watching a debate. However, I do think on the margins and depending on the race, they can have consequences. I know you're going to be talking about Florida. You know, you have Ron DeSantis against Charlie Chris. Maybe it won't turn the tide in that race down there. But Ron DeSantis wants to be doing things, maybe other things, a few years from now, maybe something that happened on stage tonight will have some impact down the line. It might persuade people, right, for the 2024 that he's alluding to, but in terms of where we are right now, I mean, this is one of the first times in recent years that the Florida governor's race has been as much of a lead for the Republican candidate or any candidate, frankly, in this moment in time. And I wonder, given that it seems to be the trajectory that it is, Is this an instance he's auditioning for 2024 or is there still something to lose right now? Yeah, he's, he is auditioning for 2024. But in a debate, you just don't want to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. If you make a bad mistake, you can stumble. That can hurt you. But as long as you don't make any, any big gaffes or errors, you should be fine. But this is not going to change the trajectory of the race. DeSantis is going to win, but he's, he's on a stage. He's, He's looking at 2024. This is about. For okay, him. so let's well, play this moment, Maria, um, about he was asked directly mm-hmm. on if he would mm-hmm. serve a four-year term as governor if he wins. You're running for governor. Why don't you look in the eyes of the people of the state of Florida and say to them, if you're reelected, you will serve a full four-year term as governor. Yes or no? <laughs> yes or no, Ron? Will you serve a full four-year term if you're re-elected governor of Florida? It's not a tough question. It's a fair question. He won't tell you. We did not agree on the candidates asking each other questions. Governor, it's your turn. 
Well, listen, I know that Charlie's interested in talking about 2024 and Joe Biden, but I just want to make things very, very clear. The only worn out old donkey I'm looking to put out to pasture is Charlie Chris. Hearst line. So um, is that does that help him or hurt him that he won't answer whether or not he would serve? I actually think with his base, it probably helps him because everyone who loves Ron DeSantis loves the fact that he is now this national figure. They think it probably brings more prestige to Florida. It will give him more power if he does get reelected. And so I think this debate tonight probably didn't change the trajectory, but it's also like one of those Rorschach tests, right? You talk to the DeSantis campaign, they think he obliterated Chris. You talk to the Chris campaign, they think he obliterated DeSantis. But it did, it did need it to be one where it did change the trajectory for Chris, given where he is in the polls. And while I do think from what I hear and what I've seen, Chris did do well in the places where I think he really needed to underscore the extreme nature of DeSantis's agenda in terms of abortion, in terms of LGBTQ, in terms of denying history for the African-American community. All of those things were things that Chris did a really good job of underscoring. And maybe it does matter in the margins. I don't think the margins are going to be big enough for it to change anything. Well, what I'm, you know, take a step back. If we're out of Florida for a moment, I know there's a lot of focus on select races. But more broadly, are we really saying that we are, as an electorate, we are so entrenched and our heels are dug in that we essentially think of these races and the debates that are supposed to give an opportunity to figure out and test what you're talking about that people have already had their minds made up. And if, if that's the case, then what's with all the ads? I mean, these ads are coming out of the woodwork, right, to make sure they're thinking, hey, hold on, I can maybe get this last person to change their mind. I've been up late a lot of election nights over the last two, four, and mm -hmm. six years that have turned into election weeks. Why? Because some of these races are wicked close, as we like to say in Boston, <laughs> right? So I think even though 96% of the people showing up at the polls may be dead set on their vote, there's still this tiniest sliver, as my grandmother would say, sliver of Nova, the tiniest sliver <laughs> of the voting population out there who is waiting and watching and can be swayed by something. People don't watch Senate and gubernatorial debates the way they watch presidential debates. I mean, the numbers Ooh, for true. these debates are not going to be what, what they are on the national stage, although... But the it, early voting numbers are rivaling some of our presidential yeah, elections are. already, that's maybe a, for that reason. But it, seeps, but it seeps into the headlines of the local news. It seeps into the headlines of the papers for a few days, and it can be a thing. So I do think when you're talking about races that can be decided by fewer than 10,000 votes, yeah. which... You guys know they can be. Yeah. Yeah. There, look, and there are there, a lot of them today that can yeah. be. There are still uh, an impactful number of swing voters out there. There aren't as many as there used to be, but yeah. there are enough. because Some of these races are going to come down to the wire, a number of them. Pennsylvania Senate race, there are probably four, three or four House races in Pennsylvania. Yeah. They're going to be razor thin. And so these swing voters still matter. Let's talk about that, about what we'll be seeing tomorrow with the Fetterman-Oz debate. What are you looking for? Well, this is actually this debate is going to matter because there's a lot of questions about uh, Fetterman's uh, capacity to serve after the stroke. And he hasn't been particularly transparent about it and his at least initially. And they understated the problem. And so people are going to watch closely. They're going to be using closed captioning uh, for him. So people want to see if he's up to the task, if he can actually, if he can stand on his own, because he's had mostly very well scripted events. He's been trolling Oz effectively on social media, but he hasn't done a lot of public events. So this is the first time he's going to be on his own. So I think it's going to make a difference. Well, you wonder, I mean, speaking of it and that notion of saying on their own, I mean, 
just earlier tonight, you had the gubernatorial candidate and incumbent, Ron DeSantis, making last-minute promises um, along the lines of, what was it, free baby oh, items? Oh, it's a free chicken now. in it's, every I mean, pot. It's, it's it is a things. chicken in every pot in Florida. I mean, Listen the to this, city, right? Let's Listen play. to it. What we're going to do for Floridians who commute, we're going to reduce tolls by 50% statewide for all commuters in the state of Florida. We are going to make all baby items, diapers, cribs, wipes, you name it, tax-free permanently in the state of Florida so you can raise kids and get by. You know, we have a five and a four and a two-year-old. Our two oldest are out of diapers. My wife asked me, why didn't you propose that your first year in office? Well, you live and you learn. And we're also going to say that pet food uh, is going to be tax-free in the state of Florida. So, Maria, when you look at me, that's, that's a last-ditch effort. Everything. That was in the open. That gets you the get a pet car, vote. You get a tax. That gets the doggy it. and kitty vote right there. That's a socialist agenda if I ever saw oh, one. <laughs> Well, I mean, again, I don't think that things are going to change the trajectory in that specific race because I don't think that is at the margins that we're talking about where 10,000 votes, 20,000 votes are going to matter. As great as I think and from what I've seen and from what I've heard and I talked to Chris's campaign, as great as I think Chris did and as as important as it was for him to really put out there how dangerous, and I think it is true, it's dangerous, the kind of agenda that DeSantis yeah, is but running he can't on. Make, Chris right. can't make those promises, and yeah. they got a big well, uh, that, applause they, line. Exactly. Well, the states, there you go. Well, exactly. look, look, the states are flush with federal money. That's what this is about. And that's why he can throw out tax cuts willy-nilly. I mean, we're going to reduce tolls. Well, what in my state, that's what pays for a lot of the road construction and repairs. Uh, you know, okay, the pet food and the diapers, I don't know. But I, it's clear to me they've got a lot of federal stimulus money that's unspent, and so they can cut taxes You know right what's now, jaw-dropping about this? They got all this federal money yep. that Republicans did not vote for. Mm. And so, again, the hypocrisy well, the last, the last is rampant. Yeah, the last I thought he was done. He kept on going. <laughs> no, I thought he was no, done no, with no. the babies, but then no. he went on to the pets. pets. <laughs> I mean, I was waiting for him to go to young pets. Like, what happens to puppies and kittens? Do they get he's he's going to be actually um, paying for your next trip to Roswell. That was the, that was the end of the soundbite. With your whole entire college class, not just your friends. We ate fast food the entire way. That's next. It's not very expensive. That's next. Um, All right, so what do you all think? Do debates still help voters make up their minds? Are there still minds that are left to be changed out there? Let us know. That and anything else you want to say to Laura and me, tweet us at Allison Camerata and the Laura Coates. Election day is two weeks away, but voting is already underway. More than 7 million voters across 39 states have already returned their ballots. But there are also reports of voter intimidation. In Arizona, six complaints have already been referred to the DOJ and the Arizona Attorney General's office. People report being photographed and followed at one ballot drop-off place. And two reportedly armed men wearing tactical gear We're hanging out near a ballot drop box in Mesa, Arizona, according to the Maricopa County officials. But a lawsuit was just filed trying to stop these tactics. Plaintiffs alleging that the group has violated the Voting Rights Act and the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Joining me now is one of the lawyers behind that lawsuit, Democratic voting rights attorney Mark Elias. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Can you just describe what these guys in tactical gear and masks who are reportedly also have guns. What are they doing at these drop-off boxes? 
they're intimidating voters. I mean, let's let's just call it out for what it is. They are not there because they want to observe. They're there because they want to create an environment that makes people afraid to use ballot drop box. Ballot drop boxes in Arizona are entirely legal. There's nothing suspicious about them. And a group of, of uh, election deniers and big lie advocates have arranged this so that people are afraid to vote. And who are those guys? Do you know who they are? So we name the organization that that seems to be the umbrella for this effort and its uh, and its leader. We also name a series of John Doe uh, and Jane Doe defendants, because, as you say, some of the people who are at these polling locations are masked, are armed, are otherwise acting in a way that it's hard to identify who they are. But if we identify who they are, we will add them as defendants to this lawsuit. So you've just filed the lawsuit. Um, it w- I would think that being with a gun at a ballot drop box and in tactical gear and wearing a mask would be illegal. However, the Maricopa County Sheriff um, says that's not the case, that people can bear arms. Here's what he said tonight. It doesn't meet the threshold for a crime, and that presence of itself does not. Okay, this is a free nation. The Second Amendment is is as important as the first. So people have the right to bear arms. And and unfortunately, the gear that they wear um, is is by their choosing. So, Mark, what about that? Maybe it's not illegal. Well, two things. First of all, I think what the sheriff there is talking about is whether it violated the criminal law of Arizona. We're not alleging that it violates the criminal law of Arizona. We're uh, pointing out that it violates the federal laws, the Federal Voting Rights Act the federal Ku Klux Klan Act that make it, uh, that that create a cause of action to prevent people from intimidating people from voting. So whether it's a crime under state law, I don't know. I, I take the sheriff at his word, but it is certainly a violation of federal law. So we're only two weeks away. I mean, obviously all, people are already uh, voting. How are you going to stop them as of tomorrow? So tomorrow we expect we'll be before a judge, uh, my team uh, and our lawyers in state representing uh, the uh, Alliance for Retired Americans and Voto Latino will be in court and will hopefully convince a judge to issue what's called a temporary restraining order, which is to prevent this while we sort out who's who and, and what exactly is going on. Because the right to vote, the Supreme Court has said, is fundamental and preserves all other rights. And, and what we have here is just a sad and despicable instance of people trying to prevent people from exercising that right. Have you heard from people who were trying to drop off their ballots and felt scared? We've had people reach out to us. You know, we have a process for vetting them, you know, so I don't want to go too far beyond what's in the complaint. But I think the complaint lays out a pretty compelling argument that there have been people who have come forward, who have said that they were tailed, who have said that they were questioned, who said that they were intimidated. And that's all it takes to meet Uh, the federal statutes that we cite. One more thing, Mark. Um, I know that there were a couple of posts on Donald Trump's um, social media company that are connected. How so? So um, not surprising, since Donald Trump is the original uh, uh, election denier, uh, that his company, Truth Social, is a place where, uh, where these election deniers and big lie advocates and vote suppressors 
uh, share messages, you know, the way you and I might on Twitter, they do on 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 uh, on Truth Social. And so we attach screenshots of what they're saying on that website about uh, how they're encouraging and organizing these efforts. Okay, Mark Elias, um, let us know what happens. We'll be obviously following your lawsuit as well as the early voting in Arizona. Thanks so much for your time. So that was uh, informative that um, it actually is not necessarily against state law, but he's suing in federal law. I mean, I used to, as a part of the voting rights section, the rights division would actually monitor elections for these very reasons. We're trying to see whether or not somebody was actually trying to intimidate voters. Because you can imagine, if you were to follow that thread, if somebody's outside and they're copying down your license plate, if they're standing out in some way armed, if they're trying to say anything to you, if they're doing something that makes you feel less willing to exercise your right to vote, you've got an intimidation is- aspect. And of course, the, the way to do it, it's all the devil in details, but he's right. I mean, at the state level, might be very different from what is proven for the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And not the first time you haven't seen this. I mean, you have it in different election cycles, people outside the polls. It was part of the frustration in 2020 about just how close even official observers could go to the voters. And so I think this sends a very big message as to what's going to happen next. But yeah, yeah, we'll see. We should also mention that the group that he mentions in his lawsuit is called Clean Elections mm-hmm. USA. That's, I think, who he believes is behind this. Yeah. We are reaching out. CNN is reaching out to them. And we've not heard back yet, but we'll update you as soon as we do. Well, they'll certainly answer if they are in the part of the complaint. Look, alleged voter intimidation in Arizona is one thing. But as they say, but wait, there's more. Now there are mysterious robocalls and faked campaign ads just two weeks before the midterm elections. And Allison, forget the gloves coming off. The dirty tricks are coming out. Attorney General Merrick Garland now vowing the DOJ will not permit voters to be intimidated before the midterms. But frankly, voter intimidation is not the only concern as candidates are vying for a win. We're seeing plenty of, well, let's call them misdirects and outright tricks trying to sway voters. The question is, how effective are they going to be? We're back now with John Berman, Charlie Dent, and Maria Cardona. You know, before we even think about this and the dirty tricks, this the intimidation could be part of that as well. The idea of trying to force voters to question whether it's worth it to vote, right? That's at the core. Absolutely. And you heard Mark saying, and I'm so glad he's doing this because there's no one better at what he's doing in terms of protecting everyone's right to vote and their voice to be heard, that Voto Latino is joining him in these lawsuits because it's Arizona. A lot of what we're seeing is that these are happening in places where there could be voters that have mixed household, mixed status households, meaning there could be undocumented people living in that household. That is absolutely a a definitive and outright intimidation tactic to keep Latino voters from voting because they know that that's going to be something that it's going to really raise the fear of someone who's going to vote who might have people in their household who aren't here with papers. Yeah, um, there's, the, there's the fear, though, right? And then there's the robocalls. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there are actual <laughs> dirty tricks. And right. this, there is a totally scurrilous uh, robocall happening yeah. in Georgia that is someone pretending to support Stacey Abrams. Yeah. So let's oh. listen to this. This is awful. 
This is Jill, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm sure you'll agree with me that people that identify as women are under attack, not just in Georgia, but throughout our country. Georgia is lucky to have Stacey Abrams and Sanford Bishop fighting for our abortion rights. While some elected officials are trying to limit abortion rights to six months or even five months after conception, we are so lucky to have Stacey Abrams and Sanford Bishop fighting to protect our right to have an abortion up until the date of birth. Oh, I mean, just that's just so um, well sick. Yeah, yeah. some dog whistle, not, some very overt, yeah. right? Well, made it to forty-three thousand phones. I've been around for a few elections, and this goes on in every election where these nasty robocalls go out in the eleventh hour. It's not the eleventh hour yet, I guess, but they make these calls, and you know, nobody knows who really pays for them or who's sponsoring them. But it's a dirty trick. But this is nothing new. And yeah, normally they go out so late. Yeah. That, that when you do catch yeah. or you figure out who is doing it, who funding it, at yeah. that point, the election's used, already done. We used to call them suppression calls. Mm. Well, that's, that's, that's where it crosses the line. Calls. Suppression wow. calls is, is when it becomes illegal. I mean, the goal well, may be to The goal do is that. to suppress. Right. Right. I mean, there have been calls telling people the wrong dates, mm-hmm. the wrong yeah. places to go. That's definitely a suppression call. But this is as old as the Southern strategy. And frankly, Republicans have engaged in this, sorry, Charlie, more than Democrats have. And to me, it is an indication that Republicans are afraid to let more people vote. They're the ones who are focused on keeping these laws on the books that keep people from voting, that make it more difficult for people to vote, especially women, people of color, LGBTQ. And to me, that just states that this is a party that is afraid that the more people the vote, the less they will win. But I didn't hear, I mean, on that call you just played, I didn't hear that as the idea of trying to turn people away. I heard that as more of a call to say, with the use of pronouns, trying to have this signal that, look, remember the America that we're talking about? You don't remember anymore. Trying to appeal to some sort of a nostalgia, a la make America great when it was. It was or again, anti-woke. It, it, was, it was an anti-woke totally. discussion. And yeah. so I think they were trying to galvanize people to turn out, and they kept saying repetition, you know, mm-hmm. C.C. Abrams' name, her, you know, yeah. Bishop's name. That was intentional, not it, suppression. It was it's, absolutely. This is the dark arts of yes. campaigns. Yes. And what you both know is, is not only does this happen, but there are people who make their living oh, clearly. on making this and happen. Those, those calls are cheap. Those are the poor man's nuclear weapon, I've always <laughs> said in, in a campaign. If your campaign doesn't have much money, it doesn't cost a lot to do a robocall and you can do anything. By the way, Republicans don't have a monopoly on these types of calls. Right, I, I can tell you that. But then there's also ads me. that we just do it more. You do know where they come from. They're actual <laughs> yeah. TV ads. And uh, some of them this year are linking Democrats to defund the police. Democrats who have never said yep. right. defund the police. Yep. Democrats who have voted to give more money to local mm-hmm. and state police. And so here, isn't that false advertising? Aren't there laws about truth and advertising? Why is that allowed? Why is that legal if you're saying an outright lie on well, TV? Well, look, both sides, both sides will try to link uh, members to the most extreme elements of their party. It happens all the time. They're linking. I agree with you. Most Democrats don't want to defund the police, but there's a loud group of them who do. And just as there mm-hmm. are Republicans, there are other oh, well, come down not to Philadelphia. The, not the ones, uh, not the, but not the ones that are being no, focused I, I, I on I would this agree. Act. I would agree with that. But you go to, um, look, it, it happens. It's, it's just a fact of life. Yeah, I know, it's but just, you're just accepting that dirty tricks are a fact of life. I mean, there are laws against yeah. stuff like this. You're well, not supposed to go on the airways and, and, and this one, this well, one is especially egregious because actually 
Democrats voted to give billions of dollars to law enforcement resources to hire police. It wasn't the Republicans. Don't have to air ads, but that are false. But Republicans that are false. So there yeah. is a responsibility but there, there to make sure that yeah, that there is a responsibility but. to make sure that there are not lies within this. We'd have to, I'd have to see the exact ads here, the exact hmm. language. Maybe I have. But, 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 but by the way, who is going to fact check them? We, mm-hmm. Well, we here's did. the thing, though. I mean, litigation. I mean, I know the World Series is coming, but. Litigation is actually America's favorite pastime. <laughs> but you have the deadline of yeah. the election. Yeah. So who's going to sue well, to follow this up? But it's not just Republicans against Democrats who are doing this. Even within the party of Democrats, you have some ads that are deceptive, disingenuous, where you're trying to pit the two against each other in an attempt to do ticket splitting. Like in Pennsylvania, I was telling you about, there was this ad that pitted Fetterman against Shapiro. They're both Democrats along the lines yeah. of crime. Listen to this. I'm actually a Democrat. I'm running on my record on crime. John Fetterman's record on crime is crazy. He's not like most Democrats. Dozens of times he was the only vote to pardon criminals. 225 times, Josh Shapiro voted against the criminals. But Fetterman voted to release them. That's nuts. Fetterman's way more radical than Shapiro. What's wrong with this guy? See, you know, you raised that for point. That. I mean, and okay, so that was American yeah. Crossroads, a conservative super PAC. But isn't See, that that's not Democrats? No, that, so you can't say that's pitting Demo- Democrats are pitting Democrats against but Democrats. But there is no, like that's, that's, that's a conservative group. You are, you are tr- correct that yeah. it is not necessarily the Democrats who are paying for it. But my right. point is, it's not just an attempt to try to pit a Republican oh, against th- right, a Democrat. Correct. It's also about the notion that, look, in some places they want to have ticket splitting. Yes. And they yes. want to be able to say, all right, I, I can't go as far as that, but I'll take Mem and Oz maybe instead of Fetterman. Do you know why they're doing that? Because they know that, that Josh Shapiro is going to win. And so that's and so these Republicans are saying, OK, well, you know, we have a crazy guy g- running against Josh Shapiro. He's not going to win. So let's yeah. try to focus on Fetterman. Charlie, you they're, know what they're, they're, oh, they're, they're going after Shapiro Oz voters is what they're doing. I happen to be right. one of them. I happen to be one of them. Uh, Shapiro and, uh, You're going to split your ticket. Right. Absolutely, your because, well, that, that ad was accurate. John Fetterman has voted <laughs> uh, on the Board of Pardons to let some really bad actors out of prison. One guy who just, uh, you know, he murdered somebody, stabbing him 26 times with a garden shear. You know, Josh Shapiro has not voted the same way as, as Why uh, did Oz, I mean, sorry, why did Fetterman vote to let him out? Well, I, that's a good question because many people have tied not Fetterman not only to this prison reform movement, or he wants to depopulate the prisons, like the DA in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, who's the subject of impeachments in Harrisburg right now, because he's he's really failed in his role as a top public safety officer in the city. I hone it's in a, when you say that's a good question. And the reason I, I recoil a little bit from that is because um, it's seed planting. Yes. And then it leaves voters to say, that's a good question. But rather than have the onus to find out, they say, that's I think just I'm going to take it. It's just and, that, and that's, that's part right. of the, you talk about the idea of lawsuits and who's going to be about it. You know, I think a lot of these ads are banking on people not wanting to follow the threat or not doing, doing the research. Of time. Exactly. People don't, have, don't want to do homework on no. doing all Which the is, research. Sad. That's why yes. some of these but ads will really find work. out. Yeah, but this is why, you know, campaigns, if Democrats want to push back on this, they've got to get on the air. Fetterman's got to get people on the air pushing back on this specific thing right. if they want to get that message out. That's, That's how right. it's done. That's right. So debates matter. We yeah. answered our question. Well, Tomorrow's a debate, Allison. Let's we'll talk about it tomorrow. We answered I'm the question. I'm sure this will come up tomorrow. <laughs> the garden I'm sure Fetterman will yes, and we will have an answer. All right, everyone stay with us, if you would. Okay, there is now an official NASA UFO investigation team. Will they find out what that is? That's what we want to know. What is that thing right there? 
Allison's very invested. I am. The truth is out there. NASA finally announcing a team of 16 scientists and experts to dive into the recent mysterious UFOs. The panel will include retired NASA astronaut Scott Kelly and experts in astrobiology, oceanography, and data science. A full report with the team's findings is expected to be released in mid-2023. What are we waiting for? Back with us now, John Berman, Charlie Dent, and Maria Cardona. Guys, can I just remind you, because I want to show you, these were Navy pilots, not me, at home (laughs) with a telescope. These were Navy pilots. Wait, we don't believe you now. I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove it to you right now. Watch this. Moving target? No, I took an auto track. Oh, okay. Oh my gosh, dude. Wow. Look at that, man. Look at Okay. Your voice, you is, your voice is deeper. Yeah. Just <laughs> now. There was another one that defied all of the rules of aerodynamics. Like it can go straight up at the speed of, you know, light or sound or something. It darts around. It was freaking them out. John, what is that thing? I mean, you never hear pilots swear like that. That never, <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it was. I don't want to be a skeptic here because, again, I drove to Roswell. I want to believe in this. You're making a bad face at me. <laughs> yes. I do want to believe. I, I don't know what it was. You, want to, you may want to come but back. Why to don't me. you just say it's an alien? Because, why won't you so say that? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Because he wants to be a credible journalist still. <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson, who we all respect, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, you know, um, he points out that like everyone on Earth has got at least one of these things now. Some of us ha- have two of them. And given that we all have these things and take really good pictures with them, yeah. how come? All the pictures that we pour over and try to, you know, pull some kind of kernel shred yeah. of evidence that it's a, that it's a UFO are like this. Why? That I don't looks know just what like a UFO. Too far out in the atmosphere, and the only people that can see them are these Navy pilots. Who swear? Who swear like sailors? Well, yes. I, I, I don't is know that a burner phone, John well, Berman? That's my real question. Why do you have two phones on the desk right now? That's a Charlie. Charlie, Charlie you were in Congress. Do you know some classified information about uh, what that is? Ooh, I tell us, Charlie. I remember being invited to a briefing or two on the subject, which I blew off. Why? Why would you because blow Because I had off? more important things to do. But uh, wow. seriously, but, you know, look, hey, the Navy couldn't figure this one out. So glad we have a Space Force now. Put a few of the cadets on this one, see if they can figure it out. But uh, I'm, I'm glad they're going to do some research on this because apparently they can't explain it. Yes. You talk about things that are aerodynamically unsound. Well, I put bumblebees and helicopters in that category. Right. And they fly anyway. Also inexplicable. Agreed. <laughs> well, look, I mean, we, we all kind of joke around. And I, I give you a hard time about this. But on all honesty, I'm actually very intrigued. I, I do believe there How must be some... Be? I'm very intrigued by it, but here's the thing. I think that there's something to the idea that every time someone hears about it, there is some glazing over effect, and I don't know why. Is it because... For, are we afraid as a civilization that it might be true, or do we look at this? It's so been it's been so Hollywood atized yeah. in these yeah. issues that we think, well, that can't possibly happen. What what is it? I think I think it's a mix of both of those, and, and I think that there is part of us, and maybe a lot of people that actually do want to believe it, but like John doesn't want to be the one to jump in to say yes, this is actually an alien because we don't know enough about I've it. I've been burned so many times. Uh, yes, well, there you go, <laughs> exactly. But but. But I also read that 
Uh, so many times there have been things like this, maybe not like those kinds of pictures, but whether it's like a, a blue light that no one can explain. And then finally it comes down to it is some scientific phenomena mm-hmm. of light and sound and whatever else is out there in the atmosphere. And that might be what this ends up being. Maybe. But we don't maybe, know. But, the, maybe, but I was really wowed by the Navy pilots who were on 60 Minutes who said that what they both saw separately in separate planes was something that we don't have the technology for. The technology does not exist on Earth for that whatever they yeah. saw to move in the direction that yeah. it moved at the speed that it did and pop up in another yeah. place. And so that was uh, a few years ago. And I'm so ready maybe for NASA to we now also, get to the bottom of it. Maybe well, we also don't have legitimizing it though. Is something that is telling. It's huge. I mean, that NASA what is, is saying. I mean, right. all of us are laymen, right, compared to anyone at NASA. No, I'm a rocket so, scientist. I mean, you, you are a rocket in your <laughs> day job, of course, yeah. in your free time. But the idea that NASA is to is adding some level of gravitas, I think, yeah. moves I, I, the needle. I, I think I it's actually useful. Look, hey, NASA just they just took out that uh, that asteroid or redirected it. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yes. And uh, but I but look, I'm glad they're going to do the research. I'm glad they're going to study yeah. this yeah. and let them try to figure out what it was. I'm not going to speculate that. No, I want to believe. No, and I do. I mean. I think we should look into it. We shouldn't close off the possibility. But I do think the standard to be convinced is a little higher than, look at that blur. John, to your point and to answer Neil deGrasse Tyson, it could be, you talked about this, Laura, that we don't even have the technology, that this doesn't contain the technology to photograph them, it, they, whatever pronouns they might want to be using. (laughs) You're right. What pronouns right. will they use when they land on Earth? Yeah. Um, well, wow. All right. Speaking of what you Thanks, probably guys. couldn't believe, do you know what is unbelievable to so many people out there? That slavery is on the ballot in five states. It's not extraterrestrial. You're going to explain this to us. I'm going to explain why after this. Voters in five states had the chance to wipe slavery and indentured servitude off the books on Election Day. And I had no idea that it was still on the books. I mean, if you thought, and people would rightly think, that slavery was outlawed in this country, oh, back in 1865 with the 13th Amendment, let me remind you there's actually one exception to it. The text of Section 1 of the amendment reads, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place, jurisdiction, excuse me. So slavery and indentured servitude have been on the books as a potential punishment in more than, what, a dozen states? Though the penalty hasn't been enforced since the Civil War. Well, listen, now voters, Allison, in Alabama, in Louisiana, in Vermont, Oregon, and Tennessee, they have a chance now to remove the punishment from their state's constitutions once and for all, essentially saying that the 13th Amendment will be universal and not include those who have been prisoners as well. But the way they're doing it is causing a little bit of confusion. Okay, so let me just make sure I understand this. Yeah. Slavery is still legal if you're a convicted, if you're a convict. So in prison, in those five states... If you're a convict, I assume of like murder or rape, I mean, something obviously where you're doing or some hard time, mm-hmm. just any felony? Well, the key is that there's always been an exception to be able to use like a chain gang, essentially. Yeah. People think about chain gangs or the idea of 
forcing someone to perform services yes. without being able to do anything with without, no pay. without any paid. So the idea of slavery and it's conservative, you'll have these different languages there. Let me just show you an example of yeah. why this is on the ballot and what they're saying. So in Louisiana, for example, here's on the ballot. It says, do you support an amendment to prohibit the use of involuntary servitude except as it applies to the otherwise lawful administration of criminal? Me- meaning, keep the 13th Amendment as it is, yes or no. Do you want to have an exception yeah. where you can force them to work in, in and of itself? That is confusing, but I'm also conflicted about this. Don't we want prisoners, particularly murderers and rapists, don't we want them to have to do hard time? Isn't that a good punishment for convicted murderers? Or, I mean, in other words, we don't want them to get off easy and not have to do hard labor or to be, do we want them to be paid well, for Well, we criticize other countries for having labor camps all the time. The idea of thinking about having somebody who is doing their time, being incarcerated, does it require hard labor that doesn't have any pay to it? And does it, who does it benefit is the question. So the voters are now going to have a chance to decide, do they want that exception or not? I mean, it's fascinating, Allison, because most people don't realize it's on the ballot and they don't realize that it's still even something that has to be voted on. Well, thank you for raising that for all of us. I'm sure we'll get comments on that. Meanwhile, the FBI and local sheriff's offices are concerned about the potential for violence at the polls, all because of misinformation. That coming up. So in case you haven't heard, the midterms are about two weeks away. And the threat of chaos around Election Day, frankly, it's very real. Let's discuss all of this with our political panel. We have analyst Asted Herndon, Republican strategist Doug High, and CNN political commentator Karen Finney. Great to have all of you with us tonight. Okay, so there's so much to talk about in terms of the chaos that could happen with the Mm. midterms. Let's start with um, election deniers. So as you know, the place is lousy with them right now, particularly places like Arizona. And then today, Ted Cruz went on The View and could not answer the question as to whether or not basically Joe Biden was legitimately elected. And he pivoted, and Karen, this will be to you, because this is the new talking point that I hear all the time now from Republicans. When they get uncomfortable about the election denying, they pivot immediately to the past. So let's listen to this. Was Biden legitimately elected? Because half the party thinks that he wasn't, and it'd be very powerful for you to tell the truth. So so listen, Biden is the president today. There's a lot of folks in the media that any time... Hold on, I'm 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 answering exactly that question. There are a lot of folks in the media that try to... Anytime a Republican is in front of a TV camera, try to say the election was fair and square and legitimate. You know who y'all don't do that to? You don't do it to Hillary Clinton. It is. (laughs) They are starting to try to claim... That because Hillary Clinton and her supporters were disappointed with the outcome, that it's the same thing as what's happening now. And let me tell you something. On election night in 2016, we were, you know, when these nights happen, you're on the phone trying to figure out what's happening. The votes are coming in. The question that we asked ourselves as a team was, can we get to 270? Because if we, we knew as a staff, if we couldn't go back to Hillary and say, Yes, we think we can get to 270. It's worth it to try to push this out to continue counting. Then we knew she wasn't going to try to, she knew it would be bad for the country. That's the conversation that should be happening every election night, whether or not you legitimately have the votes and actually won, 
or and not, how are we going to lie, cheat, steal, evade? And it's, you know, it's so toxic to our country to be doing this. It's, you know, we're already so divided and polarized and it's just further driving wedges between us in ways that's just shameful. I always hate when people, you know, try to somehow undermine or think that you're stupid, right? That you don't understand and recognize a pivot or recognize that somebody has not said yes or no in response to a yes or no question. And you think about this strategy, Doug, and thinking about the way this happens, I mean, why would a sitting senator not simply say that we essentially have free and fair elections, but then on the other side, he'll likely come out and say that as long as he was elected, then we must have fair and free. What is the strategy behind that? Is it that they think that voters are going to be like, you know what? I like this pivot. It works for me. It, it can't possibly. Well, look, our, our politics have gotten so tribal that an audience wants to hear what it wants to hear. The left wants to hear what it wants to hear. The right wants to hear what it wants to hear. And there's nowhere, not in the middle as in a moderate situation, but where the truth is that really satisfies anybody. And so this shouldn't be hard. You can say very easily, if you're Ted Cruz or any Republican senator, Donald Trump won fair and square in 2016. Joe Biden won fair and square in 2020. And I'm going to work every day to defeat Joe Biden or whomever runs in 2024. And your base can respond to that. But politicians need to be leaders and take their base to that place of truth where you can then be the fighter you claim to be. This analogy that they're using with Hillary Clinton is uh, a crazy one. She conceded. She went to the inauguration that was not hers. Her supporters didn't um, have an insurrection at the Capitol. It doesn't work. Yeah, we should be really clear that this is a false equivalence. There is no uh, uh, equal action between what happened on 2016 and what happened in 2020. But the reason the senator is making this very obvious pivot to your point is because he read those results from the Republican primaries just like everyone else did. Trump-backed candidates were successful even though they embraced those false election claims. And so he is following uh, where, where the base is right now and trying to calibrate his position to that. Now, to your point, that is not leadership, particularly on the facts of where the election is. But that is a politician reading the signs of where the grassroots of the Republican Party are and trying to match his rhetoric well, to part that. Part of this, though, is about the January 6th committee. I mean, we're, we're conflating some of it. I mean, they're conflating yep. to your yep. point. Because you're talking about 2016, I think what they're meaning, and I hate to put words in someone's inarticulate mouth, but the idea of thinking about it is, are they suggesting, look, you doubted that the Russians did not have interference in our elections. The whole committee, the impeachments were about trying to, in part, look at the uh, interference. They're conflating that with an, an investigation into whether uh, what led up to January 6th. But the American talking point is... Ah, hold on a second. You doubted then, and now you're mm-hmm. doubting this, or you didn't doubt one or the other. Is that what they're doing, conflation? You know, to some extent, yes. And here's the problem just politically, brass politics on this for Republicans. We've seen the, the impact that that can have when you have an election denier, let's call him Donald Trump, go to the state of Georgia and spend his, his whole time there saying, the election was rigged against me, your vote doesn't count, and Republicans lost two Senate seats on this. So That's Republicans, right. smarten up. If you want to win, this is not a winning strategy for you in November, and Georgia may have a runoff again this time. Yeah, mm. I mean, two things. One, Hillary Clinton, just sprinkle it in any time if you're a Republican and you get in trouble. <laughs> oh, it's Hillary's fault, right? I mean, come on, poor woman. I've always said she should be getting paid for how much they use her name. She should get royalties, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. But the other thing I will say that we should be, we should applaud is the voters, because we are seeing people, despite all the challenges, coming out in record numbers. And that is something to be applauded, because voters themselves are saying, 
you know what? I'm going to I'm still going to vote. This is my country. I'm going to have my say. And I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. We've got to protect that. We've got to protect the freedom to vote. And we know that we've also got to do a better job in protecting our elections. And hopefully we'll be able to do that. I really don't like agreeing with Karen as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you do. I love that. Moment. I love it. But you know what? Um, who does not agree? I'm going to get to this point as well. Speaking of election deniers, one happens to be the spouse of a sitting Supreme Court justice, Ginny mm-hmm. Thomas. And today... Justice Thomas, which, of course, was he is the point person from the circuit court from which this came. He gave a temporary win to Senator Lindsey Graham by saying, listen, you don't have to right now testify in front of the grand jury that was impaneled in Georgia. Yeah, because um, we need to think, figure out an administrative stay about whether the speech and debates clause really will shield you from having to state things. That, to me, talking about the idea of elections or the hint of impropriety, yeah, how is he that's not a conflicted? huge problem. How is, <laughs> is Justice Thomas not conflicted? You know, if I had to answer that question, I would not just be a political reporter. I would be a lawyer, you know? I, I, but I do think that you have a, a real a feeling of the wrap-up of a, a conflict of interest yeah. between the Supreme Court justice and what was obviously his wife's uh, a leaning in to those very clear election conspiracies, those false claims that the election was stolen. And she was not just a, a passive member of that, but was actively using her, uh, according her power and, and trying to rally others to that cause. Oh, we have and so, yeah, and, and so there is no uh, a shortage of facts here that the Thomas household was very much wrapped in the core questions of the election denial. Let's just yeah. remind everyone. So Jenny Thomas on November 10th, uh, after news organizations had projected Joe Biden the winner, sent this text to Mark Meadows. Help this great president stand yeah. firm, Mark, exclamation point. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. She was a witness yeah. on January 6th. Yeah. How it, can her husband not have recused himself from all matters about January 6th and the, or the election, basically? It's shameful. And it is yet another example of a Supreme Court that is out of control, that is literally not operating in the best interests of this country. I mean, I will never forget, you know, when Judge Thomas said... After the Dobbs decision, and remember he touched on privacy, but then he didn't say anything about biracial, interracial marriage, which as a biracial person, I was looking for that one. But as a man who himself is married to a white woman, right, that one touches a little too close to home. But we're just going to weave in and out of the law, you know, to suit us. To be fair, just one point about Justice Thomas he did refer it to, or he's likely to refer it to the entire Supreme Court to then decide the issues on an administrative stay. But the point is not lost that although he is the point person for that circuit, the fact that he is able to entertain mm-hmm. even that moment is cause for concern. I remember the hint of impropriety, right, is the issue, yes. not just the obvious. All right, so let's get quickly to, there's a new sound coming out of Bob Woodward's audio tapes with President Trump. Uh, Bob Woodward, as you know, has been releasing all of these, you know, Donald Trump in his own words. And so this is a moment that we just heard for the first time this evening. And it's about how he was explaining the COVID outbreak to his 13-year-old son, Barron. I wanted to capture the moment when your son, Barron, asked you about this. Well, he's just turning 14, so he was 13 in the White House upstairs in his bedroom. He said, Dad, what's going on? And I said, it came out of China, Baron. Pure and simple, it came out of China. And it should have been stopped. And to be honest with you, Baron, they should have let it be known it was a problem 
two months earlier, and we wouldn't, the world would not, we have 141 countries have it now. And I said the world wouldn't have a problem. We could have stopped it easily. Well, I mean, that's not wrong. I mean, if, if China had been more transparent about it. It's not your typical father-son conversation, but obviously presidents don't have typical father-son conversations sometimes. And what he said was, was right. It just is a little strange and leaves you scratching your head on, is that the father-son conversation with a 13 Is that the bedtime story that happens in right. the White House? Yeah. I mean, you could tell that by asking him the question, he was looking for a little texture, right? A little like, I sat him down and I explained to him, but I told him, don't be afraid. Some, some version, right, of comforting. It's just that Donald Trump doesn't do that. He doesn't do. He is always on his talking points. Came out of China. Came out of China. Even with his kid. Well, that, I mean, Whether or not that was the conversation well, or not, right. right? There's a good chance that wasn't the conversation. That's a great point. I mean, That's the, a great point. The larger point to me is, you know, it's, a, it's almost cognitive dissonance, right? We could have stopped it a long time ago. But the point was, at the time that he was in office, he yeah. was the president of the United States and could have taken action in some respect to be more productive about alerting people and legislating, right. I mean, uh, ruling, not ruling, he doesn't rule, but being the head executive appropriately. So that was lost in the conversation. Absolutely. Whether uh, uh, whether the origin of the coronavirus, whether he, how he packaged that message to his son, he could have been a more prepared president to per- and lead the country in that critical moment. I think in that time, we saw all of the, all, all of the flaws of the Trump White House really spill out into public policy, the unpreparedness, the mixed messaging, the lack of discipline, those have real human cost. And so I certainly think it is, a, a, you know, just hearing Donald Trump recount all stories is like, it's kind of a fascinating experience. But you're right that in that does really show some of the distance between what he was saying privately what he, uh, and what he was, we were seeing on the public stage and in his role as commander-in-chief. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to think about it all. And here we are still together. So wonderful. The question now is, are we on the verge of another chaotic election? Spoiler alert, maybe. And what do you think of Ted Cruz on The View refusing to say Joe Biden was legitimately elected? What are you thinking as our conversation unfolds? Let us know what you were thinking about that and anything else you want to say to Allison and me within reason. Tweet us at the Laura Coates and Allison Camerata. A teen accused of killing four students at a Michigan high school last year pleaded guilty today. 16-year-old Ethan Crumbly pleading guilty to 24 total charges, including one count of terrorism and four counts of first-degree murder, facing up to life in prison without the possibility of parole on several of the charges. Now, his parents, Jennifer and James Crumbly, are each being charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter after prosecutors accused them of giving their son easy access to a gun and ignoring signs that he was a threat before the shooting. Those two have pleaded not guilty, and their trial will start expectedly in January. For more, I want to bring in CNN legal analyst Paul Callen, Doug High, and Karen Finney are also back with us. Paul, first of all, a bit of a surprise that he pleaded guilty after Frankly, this could have been done initially. It wasn't that the facts have changed in any meaningful way. What do you think is behind it? Is there um, maybe a cooperation in some way or the facts were just too overwhelming? There was a little bit of cooperation in the, what we call the plea elocution when he answered the questions of the prosecutor to admit his guilt. But um, what was very surprising was he pled guilty to all 24 mm-hmm. counts in the indictment. And the prosecutor said, we've made no deal whatsoever with him. So the judge in the case could give the maximum sentence consecutive counts on each count. So 
I think what's going on is they were going to assert an insanity defense originally. And defense lawyers came to the conclusion it was an untenable defense. Mm. It's very hard to prove insanity in a court of law. And uh, ultimately, they decided the only hope for him uh, was to have him plead guilty to everything and for the court to see that level of cooperation. And and they're going to use that to argue that he should get a lighter sentence than life in prison. And, Paul, let's talk about his parents, Mm. okay? Legally, how are they not responsible? Before they bought their 15-year-old a gun, they knew that he was paranoid, he saw demons, he had hallucinations. This is all according to the prosecutor who has evidence of texts about this. He tortured animals. He kept the severed head of a bird in his room. He had scribbled Nazi symbols in his notebook. He had drawings of guns in his notebook. He texted a friend he was going to shoot up the school. This is before they bought him a gun. Aren't they legally responsible for some of this? It's astounding. And it goes even beyond that. He told the father what kind of a gun he wanted. He gave the father the money for the gun. And the father then brought the gun. And by the way, it was a Sig Sauer semi-automatic pistol. Very, very dangerous weapon. And they didn't lock the weapon up. He had free access to it. Then on the day of the shooting, he was drawing something in the classroom. And what he was drawing was a picture of a gun. And he was writing down, the thoughts won't go away. School authorities called the parents. Obviously, they would bring the parents in and they said, you've got to bring him home and put him into counseling. The parents refused to bring him home. When he left the house that morning, he had a backpack and in that backpack was the gun. And only an hour or so later, the shooting began. Four kids dead, seven people seriously injured. So these parents are going to go to prison? Well, they've been charged with voluntary, uh, involuntary manslaughter, which is causing a death as a result of a grossly negligent or reckless act. To my knowledge, it's the first time in the United States that parents have been charged in a mass murder case. Now, we see it sometimes when, say, a toddler gets a hold of a policeman's gun because he hasn't locked it up mm-hmm. properly. Sometimes you'll see a manslaughter uh, indictment brought, but never in a case of a mass shooting. This will be a first. So we'll have to see how a jury would react to this. They're fighting it tooth and nail, unlike the son who's pled guilty. They face 15 years in prison if they're convicted. And of course, in Michigan, we talked about the access and who had access to the weapons. A little bit of a different law there in terms of what they were required to do as parents and not do. But the thing about it is, and you make the great point, the novelty of these charges, because a lot of the law works to try to act as a deterrent from future behavior. And unfortunately, there was a mass shooting today at a school. I mean, these issues continue to happen. And so, and the question always goes to, who knew what, when, and when do the parents, what could they have done about it? So it really sends a message, whether they ultimately are convicted or not, about what the next steps might be to deter. I mean, is it it resonating with people, though, you think? Well, it's interesting because... It does seem, I mean, we've had this conversation before, I hate to say it, in previous mass shootings where there were questions about could they take legal action against the parents. And it does feel like, given how hard it has become to pass any gun, common sense gun legislation, President Biden did just get a bipartisan bill passed, but we need to do more, that maybe localities are looking at, okay, what other options do we have on, on the table? 
other thing I thought was interesting about this story is a group of students actually filed a federal lawsuit against the school saying that they did not meet their obligation to keep them safe. Because they should have checked the, the backpack. Can a school, a school can go through a kid's And backpack, not let them right? go back yes. to class. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, they could go through it. Yeah. Uh, but but I, the, the facts are so clear in this case. If you, if you have a child with severe mental problems doing things that Allison outlined in that uh, introduction... You don't allow him to have access to a gun. I mean, it's that simple. He was looking up ammunition during class time. His teacher saw him. His teacher called his mother. His mother then texted him, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. How can that mother not be culpable on some level? And then, but then yeah. later saying, Ethan, don't do it. She, she, she knew. She knew mm-hmm. something likely would have happened. And, you know, we're talking about... You know, obviously, this tragic situation that happened in one state. There are 49 other states that are looking very closely at this, and they're going to determine in each legislature. Then, can we, if this is successful, can we then do that as well? And we could see this reverberate. This is what Plur- uh, Pluribus News, which really covers everything that's happening statewide to determine trends, is looking at to say, okay, this is one state. What then happens in five more states and ultimately the other 49? You know, the prosecutor in this case did another thing that was unusual. He added a terrorism count Mm -hmm. to the charges against the shooter. And uh, we'll see. Because he terrorized the rest of the school and those kids are traumatized. You don't see that. You don't see that very often in these school shooting cases. Yeah, we're going to keep an eye on this. It's a fascinating case. Thank you all very much. So one of the founders of the Proud Boys was supposed to address students at Penn State University tonight, but the event was canceled. And we're going to tell you why. Penn State canceling an event tonight with Proud Boys founder Gavin McGinnis. This can be seen right here earlier tonight. This video was tweeted out by Onward State News. That's an independent student-run Penn State news site. The university says that it was forced to take action because of the threat of escalating violence from protesters. You're seeing a bit of it there. Let's bring in Andy Campbell. He's a senior editor at HuffPost. He's the author of the book, We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American Extremism. Doug High and Karen Finney are also back with us. Andy, it's great to have you with your expertise about this. Why did Penn State invite the founder of the Proud Boys? What did they think was going to happen on campus? Well, it was a student group that, that invited them. But the Penn State told students who were concerned about the Proud Boys coming to campus, uh, that this was a speech issue. But students told me, no, this isn't a speech issue. This is a school safety issue. Gavin McGinnis has rules of violence for his gang. He says the top level of the Proud Boys can only be achieved if you commit a significant act of violence for the cause. And so they knew coming in that the Proud Boys were going to be there and they knew from students telling the administration um, that Gavin McGinnis had been on a parade of violence with his Proud Boys for the last six years. Mm. And so they knew something was going to happen. And uh, clearly you saw from that video, uh, it did. Multiple students and uh, members of the media were maced by Proud Boys and their allies. So uh, the violence did come and it was promised. I mean, it's unbelievable to think about um, the idea of not being able to anticipate that there would be not only the protest, but the conflation to think that, oh, no, this is an issue of cancel culture or First Amendment rights. And the idea of having the marketplace of ideas take place in a school, 
But this is really conflating the issue. It's not about trying to silence a particular viewpoint. It was about trying to anticipate how to keep the campus safe. Absolutely. And in 2017, the administration banned Richard Spencer. He's a neo-Nazi leader who helped foment Unite the Right, the neo-Nazi rallies in Charlottesville in 2017. The administration banned him saying, we believe in the First Amendment here, but this isn't a First Amendment issue. The First Amendment doesn't require us to bring violence on campus. Doug, I don't get this. I don't understand why this choice would be made. I certainly understand why college campuses would want conservative voices and would want to book conservatives for campus, of course. But with a track record of violence, I mean, these were the guys who were behind the Charlottesville rally where Heather Heyer was killed. Why have somebody with a track record of violence on campus? It's puzzling. And, you know, I... I'm on a board for the Harvard Institute of Politics. Karen was a fellow um, a couple of years ago um, and also on a board of visitors for my alma mater, University of North Carolina. One of the things that's important to me is having diversity of thought and people who are coming to speak to students, um, student leadership and so forth. But you can do that and not have these kinds of situations. And it frankly is common sense that you would want to avoid these kinds of situations because ultimately, if somebody really gets hurt and we're sort of lucky that there, that it was just ugly, that it didn't go that extra level or two that we see happen so often. Um, colleges have to be mindful of this because then they're, go- they're going to be the ones that get sued. Mm. They're the ones that are going to have to pay damages and ultimately uh, experience real reputational damage. Let me show you, though. I mean, this, thing, this is not a group where people are not aware of violence being associated with them. I mean, the reason people remember the Proud Boys now, even in modern discussions in the last couple of weeks and months and years, is in part because of the history of violence. So I'm going to show you this screenshot here of when it was established in 2016. I mean, the idea of the Unite the Right rally we mentioned, the idea of in 2017, members clashing outside of the NYU. You had people arrested in New York City. And then they had the role in January 6th as well. I'm going to show people people. Um, dozens are facing, you know, criminal charges related to the riot. Beyond that as well, you've got um, people who were communicating with the Proud Boys, it seems, and you have the infamous Karen, stand, by, stand back and stand by. Yeah. I mean, people remember the Proud Boys now, not in connection with making friendship bracelets. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And particularly given the footage that we've seen over the last several weeks of the summer when we saw footage from January 6th. I mean, it's right there in front of you. So it's surprising that, you know, again, free speech is critically important. I'm a person who believes I always want to know where you stand because then I know where you are and where I am. But at the same time, the safety concerns and the fact that the administration, the school administration didn't recognize just by letting them be invited. Like, how did it get so far down that it's tonight that they finally canceled it? And as you said, not expecting that there would be violence. Andy, who's the student group that thought it was a great idea to have the Proud Boys on campus? They're called Uncensored America. They claim they're a nonpartisan student group, but they've had all sorts of sort of abhorrent voices on over the years, including Milo Yiannopoulos. He's sort of known as an online troll and a uh, you know, abhorrent bigot. Um, And students certainly didn't like that one either. Um, But that went off without a hitch. Now, with the Gavin event, they knew that violence was coming. But the issue here is is the normalization of of political violence in politics right now. This gang is embraced by a number of top GOP officials. I spoke to Roger Stone for my book, Trump Confidant, who told me that he'd been advising the Proud Boys politically and through their crimes for years. Mm-hmm. And so, so you have uh, this group that a lot of people believe 
are patriotic, are defenders of Trump's politics. And, and so, you know, that's probably why Penn State allowed this to happen. I mean, you make a good point about the idea of the same group having invited other well, controversial figures, we'll call them, and them being allowed to actually speak and having the events go on, this qualitatively feels different in a way that I think you cannot simply dismiss it as a nation of cancel culture or the idea of censorship. This qualitatively felt different. I mean, did you, when you were seeing this unfold, are, were you seeing some analogies to what was happening at some of the events that they have known to have been at? You know, at the rally, for example, the fear of that happening again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I brought forth the student concerns weeks ago to the administration, and they said they'd already weighed the violence versus the speech issue, and they chose speech. Oh. And, and you know, certainly when I, when I saw that violence there, I was not surprised because I've been covering these guys for six years, and that's what they do. It's mm. in their rule book. But it does seem that, you know, universities, and I agree, I think, as we've said, I don't think they should have been invited, but it does speak to the pressure that I think universities are feeling, being pushed, frankly, from the right about cancel culture and being open to diverse voices. And I think we've seen over the last few years a number of campuses where they've really tried to, they've struggled with that. Yeah, I hear you. And, And diverse voices are great. And conservative voices are great. And controversy is even okay. Yeah. But violence it's should not. really be the That's dividing right. line. Um, Andy, thank you very much for sharing all your expertise about them. With Thanks us. for having me. Yeah. So important to think about the ideas of what it means to have the right to speak and the right to have your own self of agency in your life. And, of course, Iranians are taking the streets for more than a month now, protesting the death of a young woman in police custody for allegedly improperly wearing her headscarf. People around the world are now joining in in solidarity. We'll talk about it next. People around the world are joining in solidarity with Iranian protesters. Tens of thousands gathering in Berlin this weekend alone, holding up signs about freedom and women's rights. Protests now entering their sixth week in Iran, sparked by the death of a 22-year-old woman. Masa Amini, for allegedly not adhering to the country's strict dress code. I want to bring in now Roya Hakakian, author of A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. Also with us, Scott Jennings, and so is Karen Finney. I'm glad that you're here, and a moment we've all been watching and seeing this unfold, and it, it's outrageous to think about what has transpired, but also inspiring about the protests and largely led by young women. That's right. That's right. I'm so glad that you juxtapose the two next to each other because it's terrifying and it's incredibly thrilling and inspiring. You know, I think it's the best thing that has happened to feminism in a long Mm -hmm. time. Um, And one of the things that I was noticing uh, last night watching a segment about Emmett Till, I thought that Masa Amini is in some ways the Iranian Emmett Till. Um, Imagine Emmett was from Chicago. He traveled to Mississippi. Masa Amini was from Kurdistan. And she had come to Tehran just for a a short visit with family. Um, She was totally innocent, as Emmett was. And for, for reasons that are entirely irrational, um, she was stopped and then taken away and then beaten up in a van and turned up dead in a, a few days later. So I think it's the degree of her innocence and the fact that 
she could be anyone. She could be any woman, just as Emmett Till could have been any black kid. Um, she has become such a national figure. And I think that's what has moved people to come out into the streets. And now these so many of these other young women are risking their lives and protesting. I mean, it's something like 241 people have already been killed in the protest and so many women have been injured. How long can this go on? What's going to happen there? Well, um, this is an interesting question because... Uh, usually what has happened, or at least 43 years ago when the first revolution in Iran took place in 1978 and 1979, the next phase of sort of people coming out to the streets was national strikes. Um, There have been strikes in the past few weeks, but but the regime immediately shuts down the strikes by arresting all the strikers. So the strikers... It are taken into custody. They have to pay huge bails in order to be released. And then a whole bunch of other strikers uh, are taken in. So um, we are dealing with a whole new set of rules that um, certainly Iranians have never played by in the past. And I'm not sure uh, what other revolution has been confronted with circumstances like this where you can't strike because you will be arrested. Right. You know, it strikes me. We are, we are the headline and what you see on the screen is that people are joining in solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly here in the United States, we believe that there should be a national and maybe international focus on the rights of women as it relates to abortion rights in this country, for example, or the march on uh, uh, the women's march, for example. I wonder if you feel that there has been the requisite level of attention paid to what's been happening in Iran, or is the world late to even realizing the need? This is what I was hoping you would ask, because I think I think it's a it's a very vital question that nobody's asking. And what's very shocking to me is that it's the best news that could have happened to us. Mm-hmm. We had a country that has been our number one post-war, post-Cold War enemy for 40 plus years. For the past 20 years, we thought that a war with Iran was imminent. It never happened. And now suddenly this enemy that was burning our flags, that, that uh, called us the great Satan, that uh, seemed to be the greatest threat against us, um, the nation is coming out to the streets saying our, our enemy is right here. They lie when they say it's America. And they have no other uh, ambition other than to overthrow their own government. Mm. And I think in some ways, Washington is not ready for good news. I was um, I met with the top brass of the State Department nearly two weeks ago, and I, I you know, I said um, to everyone, including the special envoy uh, Robert Malley, that what the Iranian people want is a revolution. They want to overthrow the regime. And two days ago, he posted a tweet saying, um, the Iranian people are asking for respect on the streets from their government. And I thought, that's not what I said. Mm -hmm. And that's not what the news coming out of Iran is. So, Scott, what should the U.S. do? I I think we ought to be doing anything and everything we can to support these people who are risking their lives. This is one of the most oppressive, horrific regimes on the face of the earth. What they do to women and anyone else who gets in their way is terrible. Uh, And so I'm a little disheartened to hear that you went and had a meeting and they've come up a little short in your eyes because... 
uh, I would hope that we would be encouraging the people to throw off uh, these oppressors uh, and have self-government. I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing that we roll in there with the United States military, but I do think the United States is the, the light of the world when it comes to um, self-government. Right. And, uh, and, and I think, I, I imagine the people on the streets there would like to know that we're as fully behind them as we can be. I mean, obviously, Iran's blaming us. I read that they're thinking about suing the United States, uh, you know, claiming we're whipping up all these protests. No, I think the protests are being whipped up by people who've had enough. Exactly. And so they need to know that we know. Right. And, uh, and uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you had that meeting. Karen? But, you know, so I was with Hillary Clinton in 1995 at, in uh, Beijing, China, where she said women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. And that's what I have been thinking about every night that I've watched the coverage on this, that these are women... I mean, again, and, and Laura goes to what you were saying, the fundamental right to control your body, your destiny. If you, you know, have a P article of clothing on the wrong way, I mean, the, the, to think you would lose your life over that. Mm -hmm. And there is an international struggle. I think that's part of it, that women, you know, we still, as we know, here in the United States and around the world, we are paid less. We are, there's so many inequalities. So I think there's such a, a sisterhood. And I would say also, though, so many brave men out there joining the women, too. I, I want to acknowledge that. But I do think part of it is, you know, just that basic call for freedom that people, I think, are relating to. Mm -hmm. Royal, thank you. Thanks so much for being here. My We've been pleasure. really looking forward to having you on and talking about what's really happening there. Thank you. All right. Um, Laura, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Monday Night Football. Um, I can tell you everything as the world that happens knows. in the games. Um, but also, a surprise tonight, former President Barack Obama was part of Monday Night Football. You heard me. I'll explain what he said next. And the rules of football. Yes, yes. And who was playing, I'll also come up with by the time we come back. <laughs> Former President Barack Obama on Monday Night Football's Manning cast tonight and encouraging everybody watching to get out and vote. What can people do to register and find out more about the process? Listen, uh, every election is important in a democracy. And regardless of where you stand on the issues, you taking 15, 20 minutes out, uh, to let your voice be heard makes a big difference. Uh, and, you know, you've got all kinds of issues from jobs, the economy, climate change, you know, you name it. I mean, it makes sense. you got the Chicago Bears and then talking about Patriots. See what he was doing there? You see what happened, right, That's Allison? who's playing tonight, as go. I was telling you. <laughs> of course you knew. The president also tweeting, thanks to Peyton Eli Manning for having me on the Manning cast. It's always good watching the game with a couple other retired guys. Don't forget to register to vote at IWillVote.com. And Allison, speaking of tweets, Allison, what else are people saying? Okay, so we were talking about whether debates have become obsolete. Here's mm -hmm. a tweet from one of our viewers. Unfortunately, the weight of debates changed in the Trump era. Some voters are just no longer interested in intellectual conversations and the truth from candidates. Mm, interesting. We have another one about this topic saying, I would agree that most voters have already decided which candidate they prefer. It's unlikely the debates will cause viewers to switch sides. However... The debates may be just enough motivation to get slackers to show up to the polls. That's interesting. I mean, we hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Maybe it'll motivate people who weren't going to vote. Okay, so this is about the aliens and the UFOs. And here's what one of our viewers says. 
After checking us out, including our TV and radio transmissions, the aliens likely chose to stay away and leave us alone. I can't blame them. Um, I like that, Jeff. So they were hovering around, and then they just took off. Like abort mission. Exactly. Never mind. All right, you know where to find us, at Allison Camerata and at the Laura Coates. Thanks so much for watching. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.